Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Just how at risk are you of having a flood? Well, when it came to Hurricane Harvey, about 40% of the people who suffered damages of homeowners uh, were outside of the flood zone, and 80% did not have insurance through the National Flood Insurance Program. Here to talk about how to assess your risk of flooding and why it is important to consider private insurance is Mark Anquilari, a COO of Verisk Analytics, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So first of all, what is Verisk Analytics? Well, Verisk Analytics has some uh, great data, which uh, provides uh, our customers, insurers, natural resources area, as well as uh, financial services with great insights into their risk and about to the decisions they need to make. So how do people determine truly their risk if they are not in a flood zone and they are not on the coasts? I mean, what goes into that? Sure. Well, I mean, the first thing you have to understand is uh, long ago, the 100-year plane uh, is really about lenders. Lenders want to make sure that their assets, the mortgage that they were putting on a home, had insurance. So over the course of time, um, there is a lot of flood-prone areas that aren't covered by those maps. So you're at risk well outside those maps. And the fact you just provided, inside of Harvey, 40% of the loss was uh, outside of those traditional floodplains. So risk is much bigger much expected. A lot of consumers have no idea. And at the same time, the actual boundaries of flood are extending every day. So I just have to wonder, when you start to do analytics on this kind of thing, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the elevation, the uh, whether they're hills, whether it's just a flat plain, whether it's covered in concrete, the soil? I mean, what do you look for? So great, great opening, almost all of those. So there's a lot of very advanced models that take a look at all that. So if you price or understand a homeowner's insurance policy, a lot of those perils are all captured in that. So the models are very effective in understanding both the floodplains but what they do is they go beyond to understand how rising water will affect an area, uh, whether it's paved or not paved, an example, c distance to coast, distance to, you know, the various uh, natural tributaries, uh, tributaries. The elements of risk are beyond just what has been a, uh, a map that's been around for a long time that has been kind of altered for different leg like legislative problems and issues. So how, who pays you? I mean, do insurance companies basically So pay it's basically models? the insurers who are looking to write those risks. So I think there's a, a great opportunity to take some of what is, you know, for the flood insurance and bring it to the private market. So insurers can provide that to consumers. And I think that's a very viable and, and uh, opportunity. I don't really see how they could do that if they could compete with the National Flood Insurance Program of the U.S., which is set to expire later this year. But I'm sure we'll get passed again because politically it would be unviable for them to say to all the people on the coasts of Florida and North Carolina, well, go go fish, go, go figure it out for yourselves and we're not going to insure you anymore. Um, but a lot of people have said that that's not an economically viable program, that there will be much bigger losses than the income that they bring in. So any private insurance policy would be vastly more expensive, no? So I think the answer is not necessarily to replace uh, the NFIP. I think that needs to continue. Uh, I'm not going to get into the 
the politics of that, but the reality is there should and needs to be private insurance to augment it, to provide insurance to those who are in a floodplain that have risk. Um, I think what we are looking to do is you know, try to provide the same type of options and flexibility that are available uh, from a homeowner's perspective, trying to provide things that's affordable and available from a private perspective outside those flood zones. And I think, you know, you need to actually have some actual sound rating information so that the pricing is accurate. Your point is valid there. It's uh, been a little bit subsidized. Uh, a little bit subsidized. Yeah, it's a very, um, very diplomatic way of putting it compared to some of the uh, language I've heard from other people. Uh, just can you give us a sense of which insurance companies are interested in, in underwriting this type of uh, policy? So right now, there's a group of very large insurers. They're called Write Your Own. Um, historically, they have been kind of focused on providing as a distribution channel to the NFIP. Um, I think under some of the more recent legislation, they will now be allowed to both uh, distribute the NFIP insurance as well as Write Your Own. I think many insurers, both on the commercial and personal lines, uh, will write the program to the extent that they get the proper pricing and rates. And I'm sure that it's not too hard to find investors who want to put up the capital on the other side because everyone's looking for yields. And you could probably get a good yield for this, right? I would agree. What kind of yields are you looking at? Well, I think you'd see that in, from an insurance perspective, ROEs have, in the industry have historically been around 7 8%. So I think most people who are kind of coming in from an alternative capital are going to look something that would be uh, low double digits. All right. Thank you so much. Low double digits, 11%, 12% uh, in a time like this of... $9.7 trillion of negative yielding debt. I'm sure they could find some uh, some takers for that. Mark Ancolari, thank you so much for joining us. Chief Operating Officer of Verisk Analytics, which takes a look at the risks that are implied when people take out flood insurance. Uh, of course, if you want to know the truth, I actually bought my apartment specifically because it was an elevation that would not get flooded. But now I'm going to have to go back. And this will be another thing that I can worry about later t late at night when uh, I don't have anything else to worry about. CME followed SIBO opening up for Bitcoin futures trading last night, and the results have been pretty good. They have not seen major hiccups. They have seen the trading volumes. They've been good. Uh, all the systems seem a go. Here to put this into perspective and figure out whether this paves the path for more institutional money flying into this cryptocurrency is Ken Fisher, founder, chairman, and co-chief investment officer of Fisher Investments. Ken, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I, I want to start with- Thanks having me, Lisa. I, I want to start with Bitcoin because it seems to be the rage right now and because it sort of highlights the degree of desire for volatility and bigger profits than you can get elsewhere. What's your take on it? Are you investing in it? Are you staying away from it? Do you see it as a sign of a bubble? Uh, so I've got a take on it that I haven't had until last week. Please explain. Which is last week uh, I'm in Manhattan and I'm appearing in various places and I'm commenting on Bitcoin. And I was routinely in print taken out of context and misinterpreted in almost everything that I said by people who seem to have some other goal. And I've never seen that happen before. So I've made a conscious decision as of last week. I'm not talking about Bitcoin ever or crypto ever because it's a crazy world. People just cannot keep themselves to the facts. 
the things that I said, which was all actually uh, on TV, uh, are clear because there's a clear record of them. I didn't do any other interviews. And there's all these other things that appeared online and in print saying things that I said, things that I never said. I think that's crazy. And I think that's an awful lot of what goes on with the rest of Bitcoin. So what did you say? Uh, Oh, it, you know, I would go back. That stuff's uh, on CNBC and on thestreet.com. And, you know, basically all that I said was, I don't know if it's a bubble or not. Uh, I hate that term, bubble. Uh, but the price movement in trading days before and after where we are as of last week is in percentage magnitude bigger than uh, any of the bubbles of history. That doesn't make it a bubble. It just makes it a big price movement. Uh, the other thing that I've said, and that I'll say about Bitcoin, is that in every long bull cycle, there is some non-stock market phenomena or close to stock market phenomena that gives you a kind of a view into a kind of a window pane into the coming euphoria of stocks, going back to John Templeton's line, that bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die of euphoria. And that euphoria, which is normally the end of a bull market unless something governmental comes along and knocks you asunder first, is something that's always not clear fully that we're gonna get to, but I think the crypto thing is the first real sign we're seeing in this long cycle of the coming of euphoria. It's the window pane into the coming of euphoria for stocks. So what are you looking for to determine whether that euphoria has started to bleed over? I mean, how do you know that we aren't there yet? Oh, that's easy. That's trivial. Look at all of the nonsense that people worry about that they stop worrying about when you get to euphoria. I mean, I've been doing this stuff, you know, since the early 70s. And when you get to euphoria, people stop worrying about things like, are there too many new highs? Uh, they stop worrying about things like, is the market's PE too high? They stop worrying about uh, all of the kinds of things like uh, the next Fed hike, because you actually get to that point when there's euphoria where they invert the yield curve and nobody much pays attention or notices because they conclude that it doesn't matter. It's the worrying, stopping about the things that people have worried about over and over and over again wrongly, which ironically is about the time to get worried. But we still have those things. We still have people that have a fear of heights. Uh, that think the market's been too strong. Particularly in America, that's true, more so than overseas, because of the, uh, you know, if you look overseas, Britain, some, continental Europe, more, the equity returns have been muted by currency strength. And so there's, it's not been so buoyant. Normally, in the late stages of bull markets, as you move into that euphoria phase, you get some multiple big years. This cycle. You know, we, we haven't really had that. Normally, the first third of time of a bull market's pretty steep. The middle third's flattish and the back third's steep, and 80% of the return comes in the first and last third of the bull market, only about 20% in the middle third. Before I came on, there was a the comment that we've had the most new highs since 1995, right. which is true. Um, but also, people forget that 1995 was a 37% year and still had years ahead of it in the bull market. Uh, an interesting point that I think people kind of miss in context. We still have a long ways to go unless the government does something stupid, which is that's so possible. <laughs> well, so if that's the case, it sounds like uh, are you getting more heavily invested in riskier stocks? I mean, is this time the time to go all in if we still have the last third of gains to go? The time to get all in was 2009, and I've been nearly endlessly bullish. 
but not in what you think of as riskier stocks. In the back third of the time of a bull market, the categories of stocks that typically do best are not the ones that people think they will because the market is a function that works off surprise. The things that do best in the last stage of a bull market are categorically what you could call comfort stocks. They're big. They're reputationally impeccable. They're things that are not thought of as needles in the haystack, but as too obvious to likely do well. They're perfectly the stocks that the last greater fool who gets into the market that was too afraid to buy a single thing one week before is ready to dip his toe into because they're comfort stocks. So this would be big, global, high-quality, well-branded names. This is why the fangs are doing so well. Uh, it's classically big pharma for the same reason. You, the, the person with money who is typically older buys the drugs, knows his friends that buy the drugs, big global name, yeah. high quality, easy to do. The, the, the last people to get into the market to push it up the most, you keep pushing it up even as it's starting to fall, yeah. those people... They were too afraid to buy anything before, so they might buy the stock of the company they work for. They might buy the stock of the company their spouse yeah. works for. They might buy the one their brother works for. And when you get a little beyond that, they buy big, right. global, safe names. Ken Fisher, thank you so much for joining us. Ken Fisher, founder, chairman, and co-chief investment officer of Fisher Investments. Shoppers spent a record $77.5 billion online. That's just since November 1st through yesterday. Every single one of those 44 days has been a billion-dollar day. Some shocking statistics uh, from Adobe Sensei. And uh, I'd love to get some insight on what we can expect in the remaining few months and weeks of the year. Tamara Gaffney joins us now. She's Senior Director of Adobe Digital Insights, which has been uh, looking into uh, some of the data from the biggest online retailers and trying to project what we can expect. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Let's, it's great to be here. Good morning. So so let's just get to start with how much can we see online sales accelerate before it becomes a logistics nightmare? Oh, that's a really great question. We actually are seeing right now about a 13.1% growth in online shopping versus last year. We're expecting that to end up at 13.8% because the last couple weeks of, uh, of the month actually turn out to be higher growth rate months, uh, weeks because of the fact that people can ship later and later, which brings me to your question, which is how much more can we ship? And uh, I think that is we're just lucky that we haven't had any big storms to slow down any of those shipping and delivery uh, services. Well, I mean, we've already heard about uh, UPS, for example, being worried about some kind of uh, logistic interruption. I'm sure that they're all racing to make sure that their stations are up to speed. Uh, we know that UPS and FedEx both are considering having some kind of uh, voluntary pickup at drugstores or local businesses uh, to try to expedite some of the uh, the deliveries. I'm just wondering, is the infrastructure okay with this growth? At what point will it not be? 
Well, at this point, it seems to be okay, but you do see the pure play online retailers investing in actual physical store locations. And part of the reason why they may be doing that is to make sure they do have a place to drop off when the event happens that online shopping overcomes our logistic capacity and uh, trucking just becomes overloaded. Uh, the other thing that's going on right now is that the average order value, that's how much is put into a cart, is a little bit down, but the amount of orders is up. And that means there are more and more boxes floating around. I was in Manhattan last year, and it was a sea of boxes. I'm sure it's like that today. Yes. So, so yes, this is going to be a challenge. But uh, Amazon owns, owns Whole Foods now. So anywhere there's a Whole Foods, if they want to ship to that location, they might be able to just have people going to pick up stuff. So is the uh, the sales profile, is it pretty much even across the retailers? Is it mostly Amazon.com that's sucking up all the gains here? Or are we also seeing an increase in Walmart and even in, say, Nordstrom? Well, you know, in my data set, I need to give you more broad answers. So I can tell you that the largest retailers, the ones who have a massive shopping catalog where it's a one-stop shop kind of deal, are picking up much more than average. The place where small retailers are winning is in the mobile shopping category. They're actually, with a more targeted catalog and more specific items that you go there to buy, it's much easier when you're on your mobile phone. I don't know about you, but if I want to go find something like a silver bracelet, I don't want to look at a thousand pages on my phone. So that so there's a place for small retailers. There's a, obviously the big places for the super large retailers. The middle guys are not doing so hot. What about apparel? Apparel is really interesting. It's one of the only categories that continues to see discounts even after Christmas is over. Right now with discounts, we're still seeing some fairly good deals. TVs are at about 15.3% discount. That's coming off of 21% though on Black Friday. So things are starting to get more and more expensive. But apparel is one of those areas that doesn't get more expensive. It actually gets cheaper as soon as you get into January. Are we seeing uh, tech really still being the hot spot? And if so, is it all concentrated in one area or is it pretty much across the board with basically uh, kids across the world doing what my children do, which is just they want anything and all things tech? It's true. Tech is one of those categories that just keeps growing and growing. In fact, it's almost hard to differentiate a toy from tech at this point. Uh, is the new video game console, the PlayStation 4 Pro with VR, is that tech or is that a game or toy? What is that now? But yeah, the electronics category is seeing iPads and AirPods and Amazon Fire TVs and Echo devices flying off the shelves. And those discounts are pretty good right now as well. Computers, for example, are at about 7% down. Uh, Black Friday saw 16% discount. So, again, all of that is going to be under the Christmas tree and giving gifts to all those from every category, from kids to, to dads to moms. And, and, and even grandparents are getting in on the tech tech buying. Tamara Gaffney, thank you so much for joining us. Tamara Gaffney is Senior Director of Adobe Digital Insights.
There's been a lot of talk about retailers that have slowly been dying for a number of years. And the question has been, when are they going to finally kick the bucket? You know, and today I looked at a story, a Bonton Stories delayed a December 15th payment on some of its debt. Uh, hasn't default yet. They still have a just grace period, but it's sort of eking closer uh, to that sort of tipping point. Bert Flickinger here with us, managing director at Strategic Resource Group. Uh, Bonton is one of the stores that has been on death watch. Is this the final nail? It, it could be the final nail, Lisa, for three reasons. One, it's primarily a Rust Belt retailer, and the better economy hasn't gotten to the re, uh, regions uh, where many of their retail stores are. Two, uh, the off-price retailers from Burlington to TJX, Max, Marshalls have opened very aggressively against them, uh, so that's very uh, problematic. And three, they've had a lot of leadership changes. So uh, when when they when they lost a couple good CEOs uh, back to back, the vendors had been supportive of the Bonton stores, but the Herberger stores have been in recently in North Dakota, Minnesota, uh, upper uh, Midwestern region, Carson's in Chicago. Inventory is a little light. Uh, The circular pages, the ad page is a little light. Uh, So getting the cash in for Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's is going to be concerning to your important point. I just have to wonder, though, also whether we're reaching a point, given the increasing pressure from Amazon.com, the fact that there have been so many years when these struggling retailers have failed to turn themselves around. I'm talking JCPenney. I'm talking Claire's. I'm talking uh, Sears. I'm talking, you know, your your sort of uh, list of laggards. I'm just wondering, is next year going to be the one when we actually start to see the fallout here? Next year is going to be the one, and the uh, TTM are trailing 12 months. We, as you, you and your team of uh, Bloomberg News have reported well, as well as the Bloomberg Terminal, 20 uh, retail chains have filed for either bankruptcy or liquidation. So but, far this year? Uh, so for the last 12 months. And but the key ones to your your key point are going to be in 2018 and 2019, and primarily 2018, where uh, the vendors are are seeing price uh, deflation. Or as Tom Keen always says, I, w- I want want to know AUR, average unit retail, and the vendors are seeing average unit retail. The retailers are seeing average unit retail, and if you can't drive higher sales like the well capitalized competitors, the Bontons, the Sears, the Claires. All the uh, key concerning change you referenced uh, are, are are really in for tough times. What's the uh, what's the catalyst here? Why now or why next year? Why now is the Toys R Us bankruptcy really caught the vendor community by surprise. We'd met with the vendor community over the summer. They'd been fully supportive uh, to Toys R Us. And you could see it in the Toys R Us ads that ran last weekend and uh, uh, pre and during Black Friday. It's only four pages, while Target is putting out a 72-page full-color toy book. And so as, as you're referencing, Amazon shifting the sales, Target, Walmart shifting the sales, the undercapitalized retailers aren't getting the extra money to advertise TV, radio, uh, social, digital, connective, and the key circulars that go to the homes in the, in the Sunday papers. And with that, it hurts customer count. And Bonton and the others don't benefit from Star Wars setting box office records this weekend. 
They have the FAO Schwartz toys, not the Star Wars licensed toys. So sad. Uh, I'm looking at Bonton Bonds. I mean, they've been doing terribly for a long time, but they are trading even lower right now. I'm looking uh, less than 31 cents on the dollar. I'm looking at these are the ones that I come to in 2021. That is not a very encouraging sign. Uh, lowest uh, in trading days. Well, I guess that there was one lower, but it's, a, it's close to the lowest price on record. But it seems to be... Uh, that there also is a shift in debt markets. There's a key shift in debt markets you're referencing that uh, no one other than you and Bloomberg are reporting because you're not able to uh, refinance now uh, the way you would have been able to refinance even a quarter ago. So it's uh, beyond Toys R Us, it's like you said, it's Bonton, it's Sears, uh, PetSmart bonds on the Bloomberg terminal yeah, they've been have traded totally way slammed. down. What happened there? It's it's a it's a combination of uh, really good reverse category killing by uh, Walmart and BJ's Wholesale Club and and Albertson Safeway, Winco, a number of others because pet and uh, all the way to pet accessories is the fastest growing category in retail, but PetSmart. Uh, hired a lot of cons- consultants that didn't know what the devil they were doing, didn't know the detail of retail. Bad leases, bad CapEx decisions, the new new stores are losing money, and uh, the the uh, stores really aren't aren't built efficiently. So it should be best of times yeah. for PetSmart, People but it's Dickens-esque. It's worst of times, to your point, on the Bloomberg <laughs> terminal with the bonds today on PetSmart. Well, uh, just to play devil's advocate, I mean, these companies, these stores have uh, managed to sort of limp along for a while. And perhaps they've closed stores enough and perhaps they'll close more stores next year. What's not to say, you know, there is a place for brick and mortar. We're seeing Amazon move more into brick and mortar. You know, they can drag along for a little longer. They're, they're, they can drag along and there clearly is a uh, place for brick and mortar, but at the same time we were going through the Bonton Herberger stores in the north central states between the Dakotas and Minnesota, Wisconsin. We were also going through Chuck and Don's Super Pet stores, a local entrepreneur, one, one shop, now has dozens of stores that's just pounding PetSmart into the ground with a lot of natural and organic uh, pet food. Fleet Farms, now owned by KKR uh, and Menards and, and a number of others are also doing really well with Pet and PetSmart uh, by going to the big house consulting firms, uh, lost a lot of the great leadership they had that built the company up during the 20th century until about five, six years ago. Uh, and, and just real quick, what are you expecting with uh, with this year's holiday sales? I mean, I, I've heard from some people that it seems like it's pretty strong so far. Would you say that that's what you're hearing? Very strong. We also checked the post offices, uh, the FedEx depots and the UPS depots. I've never seen the sh- shipping depots so packed with a record two million uh, parcels to be shipped uh, be- two between, million. Be- between the big three, post office, UPS, FedEx, and Blue. Bloomberg terminals reporting FedEx near a 52-week high today. I think, think in part that should should go higher because uh, the volume's just astounding. But the retail stores uh, with new leaders, good merchants, are are bouncing back. And Penny uh, on the Bloomberg terminals actually going up in terms of the bonds, the preferreds, yeah. and the the equity and sympathy that they'll get sh- uh, shoppers who see out of stocks at Bonton uh, shift to Penny and Sears's shoppers. I've already saved, saved penny during during the last two years too. 
Bert Flickinger, thank you so much. The only one I know is they're counting the boxes that are lined up uh, that are ready to get shipped out for the holidays. Bert Flickinger, uh, thank you as always, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.